We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The CV, CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. <laughs> Sucky. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's just a Nissan Frontier, but in my mind, this thing's an M1 Abrams tank. Honey, take the wheel. I'm going to stick my head out of the sunroof. Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The CV Report. All right, welcome to the CV Report. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. The CV Report today is powered by Radio.com, your top free radio app for sports, music, news, and talk. You can stream hundreds of radio stations from around the country and thousands of podcasts, including the new podcast series, To War and Back. It's a series we put together with Entercom and Cadence 13, and I'm super proud of it. We talked to Marine Corps veterans like Kirstie Ennis and Echo and Ramadi author Scott Husing and the always notable and quotable Army veteran Boone Cutler. And to let you experience just a little bit of it, here's a clip. There is no greater feeling than that of knowing that you're going outbound to you know, either protect the people that can't protect themselves or that you're going out to support our Marines with boots on the ground. The people who serve in the military, it's a dangerous business. From my experience in Sauter City, there was a hell of a lot more getting shot at than there was shooting back. We were just slinging lead, man, and rockets and tanks, and the boys were just crushing anyone that came within arm's reach. I mean, they were literally that close. And in the moment, right before the helicopter crashed, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, what'd you do? Did you pray? I almost went right back into, like, brain mode, and then we hit the ground. The podcast is To War and Back. You can find it on radio.com and binge all the episodes, or you can find them each week everywhere you find podcasts. All right, now, welcome to the CV Report with a historical theme. And uh, today's episode is one of the ones I absolutely love because I love sports and I love history. And this will combine both of those things along with military service. But before we hear from our guest, Al Barnes, the author of Play Ball, Doughboys and Baseball During the Great War, I'd like to set the stage with a clip I found on YouTube. This is from a video entitled The Official History of Baseball, Volume 1, from the years 1869 to 1969. The legendary Detroit sportscaster Ernie Harwell describes the game of baseball with words that are pure poetry. In baseball, democracy shines its clearest. The only race that matters is a race of the bag. 
The creed is a rule book, and color, merely something to distinguish one team's uniform from another. Baseball is a rookie, his experience no bigger than the lump in his throat as he begins fulfillment of his dream. It's a veteran, too. A tired old man of 35, hoping those aching muscles can pull him through another sweltering August and September. Baseball, just a game, as simple as a ball and bat, and yet as complex as the American spirit it symbolizes. It's a sport, a business, sometimes almost even religion. Baseball and the military are both iconic symbols of America. And our guest today takes us back to the intersection of both those things from the year 1917. It was a year where there were two kinds of men in America. There were pro ball players and men who wanted to be professional ball players. With America's entry into World War I, these two groups merged as the United States built a mighty fighting force in Europe. The book titled Play Ball recounts the story of how baseball played an important role in entertaining the troops while contributing to their physical fitness. And here to talk to us all about it is Al Barnes, the author of Play Ball. Al, welcome to the CV Report. Thank you. So, Al, you wrote a book about the intersection of baseball and military, and it's two things you know a lot about because in addition to your love of baseball, you were in the military. Tell me a little bit about your service background. Well, uh, I grew up in a, in a military family. My mother and father both were World War II veterans. Mom had been in the Navy and Dad had been in the Army. And, uh, and, and then in 1948, Dad transferred from the Army to the Air Force. So we grew up as an Air Force family traveling the world so that when I graduated from high school in Germany, uh, the next logical step was, you know, which boot camp was I going to go to? And so I, I decided to go to, uh, to the Marine Corps. So this was 1974. And so I spent three years on active duty with the Marines. And when I got out, I, uh, I went to, to college and joined the uh, New York National Guard to help pay the bills, got married, ended up in Virginia, uh, served as a Virginia National Guardsman, and retired from the Virginia National Guard as a warrant officer in 2004. Outstanding. And you've had a love of history. You've had a love of archaeology, as I looked in your bio. Uh, tell me, did you play much baseball? Every chance I got. When I was a kid, <laughs> that was the, the game of choice. And, and you know, we, we were stationed in, in Germany for many years and for Italy and in Italy for many years. And I played baseball wherever we could, uh, whether it was, you know, in formal leagues or just the guys in the housing area setting up our own diamond and playing ball. That is great, and there's something about it, too, that I just love with our own family. I was just at a family get-together over the weekend, and I've got, oh, man, half a dozen nephews. And the thing they love to do is set the diamond up in the yard, and we play wiffle ball. And uh, I, don't, I got an aspiring pitcher, I think, in the family. You got a 9-year-old that has some heat he can already throw, so we're looking forward if to it. If he can bring it, you know, that's, <laughs> that's important. But the quickest way to the majors, as we both know, is, is as a catcher. <laughs> Indeed. However, uh, in 1917, 1918, it was a different affair, and uh, they went via the military. So uh, let's talk about your book. How did you get inspired to write a book about World War I-era baseball? Well, as you know, uh, all writing is kind of a, a, a journey of exploration. And I guess I'm kind of like a squirrel when it comes to writing because I, I keep getting distracted by, the, by shinier objects. <laughs> you know, I started couple years ago uh, well, on the side writing military history books, and it was funny. One thing would lead to another. I, I, 
I was fascinated by the American occupation of Germany after World War One, which nobody ever talks about, even though there were a quarter of a million American soldiers in Germany in 1918. And one of the things that kept them occupied the most was playing baseball. And of course, that led to the Germans wondering, what are these crazy Americans doing over there in that field that they've commandeered from us? And sure enough, they were playing baseball. And then as the years went on, as I was working on other books, I kept finding other tidbits of, you know, Babe Ruth in 1918 went down to one of the training camps and played an exhibition game against Doughboys who were training to go to France. And, and so I kept finding these threads about Doughboys and baseball. And th- then I came across the story that Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson, both, you know, of the first class of the Baseball Hall of Fame, had been soldiers together in France and actually been wounded in the same uh, training accident by when they didn't hadn't been given the warning to put on their gas masks. So, so that's kind of how it all gelled into my mind as I kept trying to tie these loose threads together. Well, it is amazing, and it does show, I think, back in that era how significant baseball was to the American experience. And I think that nowadays, you know, we tend to define, I think, the American sporting experience as football, um, you know, most notably the Super Bowl seems to generate mm-hmm. these huge ad revenues. But I think so much of us are lost on on what that era looks like because it's just so long ago. Uh, share with me one of the favorite scenes from this book or one of the favorite stories that you include in this book. Well, you know, that, that, that's a, man, that's a great leading question. Uh, what I found fascinating was, as you kind of indicated, how big baseball was. Uh, remember, we're... we're going from a 200,000-man Army and National Guard to a 4-million-man total Army in just 17 months. And so to do that, they built these huge training camps, mainly along the East Coast and in the Midwest and in the South, to train large numbers of guys at the same time. And to keep these guys occupied when they weren't actually training, you know, shooting and marching and learning their basic skills, they played ball. And, for instance, the, uh, when the uh, Ohio National Guard went down south to train, they figured out later that they played over 5,000 formal games of baseball in a single month on post. There were, every unit had a team, and every unit had you know, stars that had played industrial league baseball or minor league baseball. And so uh, these guys were, were really fanatic about playing it. And, and if you needed any more proof of that was, you know, this was a time long before television and radio was just becoming a thing. You see these pictures of, of all these doughboys standing in the rain, staring at a scoreboard that a guy was reading off a ticker tape to tell them what was going on in the World Series. <laughs> oh, that's great. And still to this day, even though we have the modern luxuries of television and, and you know, Internet and things like that, um, they do still gather like the forces gather, whether you're a sailor on the mess deck on a ship or whether you're, you know, sitting there on the fob and you're a soldier. Um, you do gather around because sports bring us together. Talk to me about the sixth inning here, your sixth chapter, which I like are all called innings. And it was, uh, it's titled Playing Away Games in the German Rhineland. And from just the lead-in, I can see that uh, there was a mandate for French, Belgian, and U.S. armies to stay within the area kind of in central Germany. And it was a mandate for 260,000 American soldiers and Marines, you know, to be in that area. Talk to me about the games that they played there. It's interesting because, 
you know, this is probably the least known successful Army operation in history, if you think about it. Uh, like you mentioned, 250,000, a quarter million soldiers and Marines are going to be in the German Rhineland. And their mission is to actually run their occupation sector. That means captains and lieutenants are going to become town mayors. They're going to become the judges. Uh, the soldiers are going to become, in effect, customs guards, policemen, uh, the hospital crews in, in, the, uh, in the Army are going to travel into German homes to take care of German children that are sick. You know, it's an unusual mission for an American Army to have something like that during this period. And they did it so well that, that when they left, you know, the Germans were sad to see them go. Imagine the, you know, the last time a, an occupied country said, please come back. Uh, and in fact, if you go to that part of Germany today, one of the streets is named in the city of Koblenz is named for the American occupation commander. I mean, that's really kind of a rare thing. And the reason that it worked out so well was the Germans found the Americans to be quite congenial occupiers. You know, they didn't come in with a lot of the old European feelings of, you know, French versus German, British versus French. It was all new to them. And because it was all new, they tried to bring as much of America with them as they could. And so that baseball was one of the key things they, they did was any place where there was more than 10 American soldiers together, they set up a diamond and they played. And it got to the point that the, uh, you know, they had a, their own World Series. And one of the um, motor transport companies actually won the Occupation World Series by beating the, uh, the third division in a three-game series. <laughs> what really fascinated me was I found a, a series of photos from that game, and it turns out that one of the guys playing for that maintenance team would go home and actually make it to the major leagues as a ball player for one day and played for the St. Louis Browns against the Boston Red Sox in one game. And if that's not a kind of a field of dreams link, I don't know what is. <laughs> That's awesome. We're going to get to some of the players that did make it to the major leagues and whose names are etched in baseball history in just a moment. But uh, I kind of am curious, after hearing you talk about that sixth chapter of the book, it had to be radically different back then as far as the German population. Now, we think of World War One, and we think of certainly as defined by our perception of World War II is, you know, Germany is Nazi Germany, right? And we think of them mm -hmm. as just this kind of evil force that, that, that we had to take down uh, through violence and bloodshed. But in World War I, would the rural German person, the person living in the Rhineland area, would they have been loyal to Germany to the point where they wanted to fight Americans in the same way we see Oh, the Afghani tribal groups still sort of suspect of Americans or the way we saw the Iraqis in, in, in certain areas, you know, against us the way they did right. as insurgents? Or were the suburban and the rural German folk just, you know, kind of under the mercy of their government who wanted to create war, but they didn't really give a crap? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's kind of a dichotomy, and you, you touched on it uh, there. The night, what worked out so well for the Americans was Pershing chose his, his forces wisely that he was going to send to be the American part of the occupation. And one of the units that he chose was the 32nd Division, which were all mainly from uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Now, what kind of people lived in Michigan and Wisconsin back in the 19, early, late 19th century, early 20th century? 
lots of Germans, lots oh. of German Americans. So as as the advance force going into Germany, the 32nd Division, heck, 25 to 40% of every unit had German speakers all sprinkled throughout their uh, their units so that they could talk to the locals. And one of the lieutenants for the 32nd Division in one of the intelligence sections, as his unit moved through uh, the town of Bitburg, his uncle was the mayor of Bitburg. And so they had an advantage. They, they could speak the language. And a lot of these guys, frankly, were a little fed up with the French people because even as the war was coming to an end in France, uh, they felt like the French were jacking up all the prices on everything. So they kind of wanted, you know, they were curious. Let's go see what Germany's like. And, and so many of them, you'd have thought most of the guys would first thought was, I want to go home. Well, yeah, they wanted to do that. But a lot of them were curious about what, what Germany was actually like. And for most of them, they were pleasantly surprised. You know, they got there and found out that the, these evil Huns celebrated Christmas, you know, and, and liked having a good time on New Year's. And they produced very good wine and beer and high-quality souvenirs and portraits for them to send home. So to the average soldier in the, uh, in the Third Army, they found it pretty congenial work. Ironic that yet politically things got so unstable, you know, 20 years later, you know, 25 years later that we ended right back in another global war. Uh, exactly. With it, it, German. You know, but, the, but the way you paint that picture almost sounds like it's like a blissful post-war occupation. And if only things could run that smooth. I think in the 16 to 17 years now, we've been uh, back end of the global war on terrorism. You hit it right on the head. It was everything is has to be taken in context. So while the Americans and, and basically the British are also having fairly congenial relations with, with the German Rhinelanders, the French, who are, have their headquarters down in Wiesbaden, were having a terrible time. Uh, you know, they had come to punish Germany. And so they, you know, things were not as pleasant in the, that occupation zone. Mm. And you also have to take into context the fact that the rest of Germany, the unoccupied portion of Germany, w was undergoing this huge revolution between the, the right-wing, uh, pro-Kaiser, pro-nationalist forces, and the Bolsheviks, who were flooding in from, the, you know, from Russia and Poland, who wanted to turn it all into a socialist republic. And so having an American or a Brit or a Belgian Occupying your town was definitely preferable to having Bolsheviks and uh, right-wing German squads shooting it out in the streets. And so when you read the uh, the letters that the civil affairs guys were intercepting, because Americans, you know, we censored all the Germans' mail going in and out of the American occupation zone in the early days. And they could say, you know, we hate being occupied, but at least nobody's shooting at us. And the food is getting better because all of a sudden, you know, there's trade starting up with England and with part of France and Belgium in the, un in the occupied zones that wasn't going on in, in the unoccupied portion of Germany. Wow. 
If only we could bring a little baseball. Maybe we should try that. Maybe we should, you know, maybe in Erbil or Tikrit or, uh, you know, the Helmand province <laughs> well, of look, Afghanistan. I got pictures of the Virginia National Guard playing baseball up in Tikrit in 2007, and I don't <laughs> think it made much of a difference. Oh, God bless, man. God bless. All right. Hey, let's talk a little bit later in the book. Um, there are some identifiable names, even to a casual baseball observer. I'm not necessarily a baseball historian, but I recognize a few legendary names that, later made it to the Hall of Fame. Tell me about some big names that were in the military before they made it big in baseball. Okay, that's a, that's really easy because, again, I alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, there were five guys who were elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in the first class in 1936, and they were considered, you know, the, the, the five early greatest players, and that was Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, uh, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, and Ty Cobb. And, and so Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson were both officers in the Army Chemical Corps in France. So that's two out of five of the very first Hall of Famers, uh, you know, were soldiers. Uh, there were also uh, Branch Rickey, the guy who uh, later went on to develop the minor league system and, and integrate baseball by bringing Jackie Robinson into the major leagues. He was an officer. Uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander, there's a famous movie about him were because uh, he was a pitcher and he'd actually been uh, heavily involved in combat as an artilleryman and uh, Ronald Reagan played him in a movie uh, in the 50s about his life and uh, uh, other famous uh, sailors Herb Pennock was a great pitcher for the Yankees Casey Stengel was the manager for the Yankees for many years they were both Navy guys uh, and there were also a, a number of Hall of Famers who went to France not in, in Army or Navy or Marine Corps uniforms, but as YMCA reps. Hmm. Because you have to remember, back in World War One, there wasn't a USO. You had the YMCA and the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and the Knights of Columbus and the Jewish War League, all sending uh, folks over to give services to the soldiers, to run huts, to bake donuts, to help them with education, that kind of stuff, because the USO didn't exist until that time. And, and one of the most famous guys that went over there was uh, Johnny Evers, who was one of the famous Evers to tinker to chance uh, triple play, uh, double play combinations. Absolutely awesome. And I can tell you, I, I, I do sincerely recognize some of those names. Um, I think everybody in baseball knows the name Ty Cobb. I mean, the guy was one of the first huge record holders. But personally speaking, I went to this high school with an obscure name to most, but I went to Walter Johnson High School. So oh, that's cool. I, 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 you know, I've known about the big train and his unique pitching style, and 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 that he was from the area where I grew up, which is why our school was named after him. But I found it fascinating when I was flipping through that, and I caught his name there. So um, I've got a lot of reverence for uh, those that served any era, but especially this book and the intersection of baseball and the military. It's just, it's it's a wonderful read about a simpler time, and I. Thank you for putting it all together. The pictures are amazing, and it's called Play Ball, Doughboys and Baseball During the Great War. Al Barnes, man, appreciate you putting this together for us. It is my pleasure. My pleasure.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.